This is a Federal News Network podcast. For decades, observers of federal spending patterns have focused on the rush to use up contracting dollars in the fourth quarter. But this year, an equal but opposite phenomenon has emerged. Agencies releasing fewer and fewer dollars of contracts in the first quarter, when there's a whole year ahead yet to get things done. According to my next guest, that could lead to misspending and lots of other problems. Joining me with more, fearless chief growth officer and former EPA chief technology officer, Greg Godbout. Greg, good to have you back. Uh, Thank you. Great to be here. I think we last had you in your EPA days, and now you're with Fearless, a Baltimore software development firm, basically, correct? Yeah, yeah, digital services uh, consultancy out of Baltimore. Okay, well, that fits in with your 18F experience, too. So, Yes. <laughs> but you've noticed, and I guess Bloomberg numbers show that in this year in particular, there's been almost no contracting activity that happened in the first quarter of this fiscal Yes, yes. I noticed it being the chief growth officer responsible for BD and among other things. I noticed like a lack of new contracts starting. That's really the key is a lack of new contracts, right? So wondering what's going on, I started looking into the numbers and lo and behold, as I was searching, I was seeing in the first quarter of this year compared to the average of the last three years, a decrease in new contract spend anywhere between 70 and 80%, depending on which part of the sector you look at, which is pretty extreme. I mean, that has not happened before. Could that be agencies just because funding is always late, pretty much on a routine basis, worried about getting themselves into a position where they're spending money they don't have, an anti-deficiency situation? Or do you think there's something else at work? I think there's something else. I think the numbers are too extreme. But I would say that, like, if you look at the last seven years, there's been lots of funding delays and problems with, you know, inside government. That's sort of a common thing. And you don't see the same type of volatile change. I think this is, and this this is just my hypothesis, but I think this is related to a little bit from the Trump administration, particularly in the final two months, sort of imploding and not focusing on sort of execution of contracts. And that's when I started noticing an increased number of contracts just getting extended, extended. Oh, we'll compete that later. We'll compete that later. And then when you couple that with one of the least cooperative transitions, I would say. In, in yeah, that didn't go real history. smooth, did it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. We'll call it least cooperative. Um, you add an, an additional delay for the new administration to sort of get up to speed. Plus, you see the new administration, I think, also passing a lot of like IT modernization bills, things early on. And they're clearly planning for some major work. But like an accordion, like kind of crumbling up these new contracts, eventually you can't extend the old contracts and they will jam up towards the end of this fiscal year. And as you know, and most of the listeners who follow the federal government, add that to an end of the year spending crunch. And it's interesting to me, do we have enough contract officers to handle the crunch? Yes. And what about the development cycles too? Something you also specialize in. If you don't start a project until the second, third, or even fourth quarter, you're not going to get much done to show for the work. I think what I've seen, not through statistics, but just through the observations, is you'll see government modding a lot of existing contracts where they're modifying a contract to extend it. That expiration date hits. There are few instances where you see contracts end and the follow-on contract doesn't come back in because they couldn't get it done in time. I think you're going to see more of that, which is frankly, depending on the system, could be pretty dangerous, right? But you also have this, like they're doing everything they can to mod and extend it, 
Eventually though, you no longer can keep modifying contracts. You got to add them and this workload's going to come in. The thing I think worries me the most about it is there's a huge effort, a modernization effort that's been happening in government for the last several years, right? And there's a lot of exciting things. And one of the sort of underlying themes of that is like, the act problems and acquisition can get in the way of that, that innovation and modernization. And here you're going to double down on that, right? You're going to have a little bit of the tail wagging the dog because acquisition struggles will amplify and create behaviors that aren't for buying value and better quality services, but how do we put money on a contract, right? And it's to me, the tail wagging the dog, you should be innovating for value, not like quick, let's put money on a contract. We're speaking with Greg Godbout. He's chief growth officer of software developer Fearless. And yes, so the other end of that, as you've implied, is that there's this huge spending gush in the fourth quarter. And to some extent, there's always been a fourth quarter spending boom, but maybe it was another 10% or another 15%. Now it looks like most of the money could end up being expended in the fourth quarter, end of the third and fourth. And so agencies could make a lot of mistakes then, it seems like. I think that's part of the risk. And I think agencies will, like I first talked to, they'll find out, they'll find as many ways as possible to try to modify existing kind of try to get as much money out. But at the end of the day, we could be looking at a record fourth quarter that hasn't been seen before in the sense of like urgency and quick contracts. And I think you're going to see some contracts not get their follow on money, which means in appropriations wise, they will probably lose that appropriations and that budget for the next year. I think you're also going to see so much pressure and stress. I, I kind of feel bad for the contracts officers. Actually, can you imagine what that quarter is going to look like with program managers breathing down their necks going, get my money on a contract or something like that. Like, so, and that's going to create stress and mistakes, you know, like any other job when you have a pressure cooker. So it's worrisome. It's something the government needs to start dealing with right now. So it doesn't become a true emergency. So if you are a program manager or you are a chief technology officer or someone concerned with the development of requirements that will eventually get translated to a contract, I'm guessing that the best strategy you can have is get your requirements established as early as you can to give the contracting officer some time. That's a good point. I would definitely try to push as much up front as possible and try to create a selection process that's more efficient than in the past. That might mean using perfectly legal, but like you could like go to the schedules, for example, and you could pick three companies out that you want to go to and ask those three to bid on it. I would be doing everything I can to bring down the time it takes to execute that contract. So we've always needed innovation and acquisitions. Now's the time to like execute it so they can get caught up. Yeah, because there's another factor in here, and that is as agencies move to the agile methodologies, the soft DevOps type of concept, you might have an overall eventual program or system in mind, but you're not developing it in that waterfall way and throwing 300 pages of requirements over to a contractor. You're doing right. it in scrums and in, in releases and testing them and vetting them with users and all of that. So how does that overlay with the need to get contracts out when you're actually looking for lots of task orders, but maybe only one contract? It's going to be very difficult. I mean, the longer the contract process, the more difficult the second half of this year is going to be. So I just hope everybody is aware of it. And again, the numbers are on new contracts, right? If you look at the number of new contracts this quarter, it is alarmingly low. And it's unfortunate because it's one of those things that like, 
this is why we need government to work better. Like this is just an example of like government needs to be more efficient on these things so that acquisitions isn't driving quality of service in government, but acquisitions is a driver of good quality services, right? And that the quality services are what we're buying. Greg Godbout is Chief Growth Officer at Fearless. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. I had a great time, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff To Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke, he worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. 
And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career. 
not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and 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 I, I I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy. Even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I my office was on the floor, at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.